So I need to catch you up a little bit. We are in a series called Destination Resurrection. Destination Resurrection, Destination Resurrection means that we understand that most of the stuff we're talking about took place between the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And if I was to do all of that in one message, you would be here a while. So we're going to ask you to sort of disregard the timeline for, for a little bit while we talk about some of the things in light of the places that Jesus went in that last week of his life. Next week is Palm Sunday. Is that right? Is that next week? Thanks. Appreciate the audience participation part of our show. Um, Palm Sunday is the triumphal entry. It's the, the big deal when he came into Jerusalem. And in the series so far, we've talked about Bethany, the place that he was anointed, likely on Saturday. And then Sunday, he came into the city, and he went directly to the temple. Talked about that some last week. Well, this week, I want to talk about where he went after a few other things took place. So, he came into the city on Palm Sunday, went to the temple almost every day, and then on Thursday, he had the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, with his disciples. He was uh, in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is, uh, if, if you're looking at a map, it's all the way over to the right-hand side. And then he was arrested and taken to the location I want to talk about today, all the way over in the southwest corner. This is oriented north and south over there where it says Caiaphas' residence. Now, the reason I show you a map is two things. One, I'm a geek. And two, I want you to appreciate how small Jerusalem really was. This is only a square mile, 600 acres. And so when we so read in the Scripture that Jesus was here, and then He was here, and then He went here, and then He went here, and then He went there. He's operating within a square mile. And so it's just not really very big. So today I want to talk about what must sound like the most boring sermon in the world, the house of Caiaphas and Pilate's Praetorium. Please stay tuned. At the end today, I want to I make a particular connection that I think will help us. But first, I want to travel through a couple of other stories that kind of let us get there. So those are the, the Scriptures that we're going to be in, but I want you to kind of dial into this. What are we going to do with a Jesus who upsets our equilibrium? What are we going to do with an inconvenient Jesus? What are we going to do when we're confronted with the truth and, and the world tells us, well, that was the guy who was arrested. He was abused. He was unpopular. He died. Now, you guys say that he resurrected, but he's not around now. Well, neither is anybody else that lived 2,000 years ago. But he's here. He lives. And that's our testimony, as Michael was singing a little while ago. That's our testimony. And so what do we do with him? And that's what I want to talk about today. Let me make this statement. There is no resurrection without pain. Jesus didn't get there without trials. 
We don't get to the message of the empty tomb without trials. We, we don't get to the, the place of celebration without a, a little bit of a sense that there's challenges, there's trials, sometimes even persecution. And so the part of Scripture that I want to look at today, and it's, it's represented in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Today, particularly, I want to look at Matthew's version of it and also Luke's version of it because those tell the stories that I would like to tell today. So Caiaphas' house, why is that a big deal? Well, when Jesus was arrested, he was taken to, oops, taken to Caiaphas's house, which is on the southwest side of Jerusalem. And I want you to kind of hear this before I tell you the story, because this is where it ties in to me, and, I, and I'm guessing you as well. When our position, our possessions, our power, when those things are threatened, Usually we react with hostility. Now we're gonna we're gonna rightfully be a little bit angry with Pilate and Caiaphas and Annas and even Simon Peter. We we're we're gonna point out the things that maybe they should have done differently. But what I couldn't escape as I studied, and what I don't think you can escape as you look at this, either in the room or online, is that we find ourselves in there. And we start with the admission that when somebody wants to take my stuff, I'm going to get a little mad. When somebody wants to take away my power, my position, my standing, I'm probably going to have something to say about it. So Caiaphas was the high priest. And in some ways, he was the real high priest, and in some ways, he was a little bit of a puppet. The Romans had taken away the Jewish people's right to name their own high priest because they really didn't trust anybody. The, the previous high priest was a guy named Annas, and Annas was Caiaphas's father-in-law. The reason Annas wasn't the high priest anymore is because the Romans didn't trust him. They, they took away his power, his position. And now here is this guy, Jesus, talking about a new kingdom, a, a new way of thinking. And so Annas and Caiaphas are both threatened. So the Scripture tells us that first they took him to Annas's house and then to Caiaphas's house. Well, let me geek out just a little bit more. I, I had hoped to go there and show you some pictures, but I pulled out some old ones. This is Caiaphas's house today. Now understand that the way it works in the Middle East is that any time they found any place that Jesus might have touched, they built a church. All right, any, anything he might have done, might have seen, might have been, build a church. This is a Franciscan church that's been built over the, the, the place where Caiaphas's house likely stood. And, and, and the reason we think it was Caiaphas's house, I'll share with you a little bit more in a minute. Today, there's a chapel there that's beautiful and serene. On top of the church is a black cross with a golden chicken. Well, it's actually a rooster. The name of this church is St. Peter in Gallicantu, which in their language means the place where the rooster crowed. Because in a little courtyard right beside this church 
is the place we think that Simon Peter denied Christ three times this night. Down below the house, and this is why they think that it's archaeologically correct, there's a prison. There are a number of, of cells and, and what looks a little bit like a torture chamber. There's a, a trough and a drain that, that may have been for the, the, the abuse of the prisoners that took place there. And these cells are sort of in a, a basement or a dungeon underneath Caiaphas's house. And Caiaphas's house is where all of the religious gathering took place because he was the high priest. Now, I'll say this again in a minute, but I'm thinking about it now, so stream of consciousness moment. The high priest was the one who got to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. He was the guy who got to be as close to God as the Jewish people thought it was possible. He was the guy who got to, to speak to God on behalf of the entire nation to ask them for, ask God for forgiveness, ask Him for, to accept the sacrifices that were being offered. He, he was the guy that got to be as close to God as anybody. And yet here he was with Jesus in front of him, and this is kind of how the scene unfolded. Matthew chapter 26 Matthew chapter 26. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following at a distance. I skipped that one. I'll come back to it. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony. They were, they were soliciting lies. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Apparently, these, these people couldn't get on the same page. So even though they had kind of paid these people to come and tell lies, they couldn't tell the same lies, and that was a problem. So the high priest stood up, verse 62, and he says, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you, I, I beg you, I command you by the living God. There's a word of hypocrisy. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the man, Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds, and then the high priest tore his robes, and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You now have heard the blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Okay, it's fair to be just a little bit frustrated with these folks. They, they didn't get it. I, I command you by the living God. Dude, you're speaking to the living God. I, I command you, I'm going to claim the holy high ground here because I'm the high priest. My position, my power, my possessions, all are being threatened by what you are saying. And it is absolutely fair to say that this was crazy. Until we go, wait a minute. When my position is threatened, when somebody wants to try to take away my stuff, 
When somebody says, I'm not as important as I think I am, when, 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 when my power trip is confronted openly, I might react the same way with just a little bit of hostility. Well, you see the last line, they, they decided that he needed to die. But again, the Romans had taken away their power to do that. The Romans would have let any capital punishment be uh, uh, brought on by the Jewish people. It had to be done by the Romans. And so they took him to Pilate. Now, quickly, if you read in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you see that really he was led all over Jerusalem. He went from Annas to Caiaphas, from Caiaphas to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod, from Herod back to Pilate. Somewhere in there he was before the Sanhedrin, the religious council, and different ones of the gospel writers take him to different places. But literally he was all over the place in Jerusalem, back and forth to be in front of these people. Well, now he's in front of Pilate. Pilate is a Roman. He is a Roman who has been placed as, they, they call him the governor of, of the area, the governor of the region. Herod was the king of the Jewish people. He was the son of Herod the Great, who built the, pil- the palace that we talked about last week, the temple. He, he, he was his son, and he still had a, a sort of a, a religious official title given to him by the Romans. And then there was a high priest. So you had a, a religious potentate. You had kind of a, a, a national Jewish potentate. And then you had Pilate who had the real power because he was the Roman government. Now, the word praetorium here is not a particular place. It's wherever Pilate was. It's sort of like Air Force One is not a particular plane. It's whatever plane the president is on. And, and the praetorium was wherever Pilate happened to be. There was also a praetorium at his other residence in, uh, near the Mediterranean Sea. There was praetorium wherever he went. So it was a place of judgment. It was a, a stone pavement of judgment. So Jesus was brought there. And before I move on to the Scripture, latch on to this. When truth is inconvenient... When truth is uncomfortable, when it doesn't support our way of thinking, our response is that we deny it, dismiss it, or just decide that it's unsupported or unnecessary. Pilate did it. In John chapter 18, he even comes out and asks, he says, what is truth? What is truth? What, what is this, this new way of thinking? What is this, this, this truth that disturbs my way of thinking? We've all been there. Somebody that we love, just for hypothetical sake, let's say my wife, tells me something that I know that it's correct, she knows it's correct, but because I had said previously that it wasn't correct, I needed to stay on my story, right? Hang on to my narrative, But she continues to point out the obvious, that I'm wrong. And I'm going, what do I do with this? I I don't like that. I don't want to support that. I want to deny it. I want to dismiss it. I want to blame somebody else. And this is kind of where Pilate was. But he was in a unique place. He alone had the decision whether Jesus would live or die. 
So here's the way the story unfolds. It's, again, we're in Matthew. Jesus is standing before Pilate, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor said, Are you the king of the Jews? And he said the same thing he said to the religious people, You say so. But when he was accused by the uh, chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you hear what they say about you? But again, he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. At this point in Luke's version, Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod wants him to do a miracle or two. He doesn't. Herod sends him back to Pilate, and we pick up in verse 24. Well, actually, we're going to pick up a little earlier. When the feast of the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they called a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, and so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, and I'll tell you that story in a minute. So now Pilate is invoking an act of clemency or an act of of, of pardon. It is traditional that they would turn somebody loose. Pilate got to decide who that was going to be. And so he chose the worst one in the jail. He chose the guy who had done the most heinous things, the most criminal things, the, the most things. He was a very bad man. And it's like that commercial on television where the little kids are on the playground and they have to choose between their friend and Charles Barkley. And they go, well, of course I'm going to choose him. And and Pilate was trying to set this up. I'm going to put the worst of the worst out there. And Jesus hadn't done anything. So obviously anybody with half a brain is going to pardon Jesus and not Barabbas. Who do you want? And the people just called out for Barabbas led to a sad, sad statement. But in the middle of that, there was something really interesting that happened, and I'm trying to picture this. Pilate is in his chair or judgment seat or whatever, and, and he's, he's, he's really into it, right? He's really intense. He's really serious. And somebody taps him on the shoulder and says, uh, I have a note from your wife. What? I have a note from your wife. So he reads it, and his wife in a dream says, don't have anything to do with this guy. You may think that it's just, you know, legislating, adjudicating Jewish law, but it's not. I I had a dream. There's something about this guy. You don't want anything to do with him. And so now Pilate's really in a bind because he wants to turn him loose. His wife thinks so. He, he's a Roman. He doesn't really care about who has power, position, or possessions in terms of the Jewish world. And none, none of his stuff is being taken away. And so he's going, okay, as a, as a Roman, as one who's dedicated to peace and reason, I don't see anything wrong. Turn the guy loose. And then the mob just started cranking up. The chief priests, the elders, they persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said, come on, really? Which do you want me to release? They said, door number two, release Barabbas. Pilate said, what shall I do with this guy? And they said, crucify. 
And they said, what has he done? They shouted all the more, crucify him. I want to read to you the last thing they said. All the people answered. Pilate, the, the familiar thing about Pilate, he, he called for a basin of water. He symbolically washed his hands. He said, I'm, I'm done with all this. His, his blood is on your hands. And listen to what the people said. Then his blood be on us and our children. What kind of rage is that? What kind of insanity is that? That they are so worked up about their stuff being taken away, their way of thinking being disrupted, their equilibrium being upset, that they made this insane declaration that if there is judgment, if there's a payback, let it be not just on us, but on our children. Rage causes us to do crazy things. Weird out of bounds things. Ask Will Smith. When we are way torqued up about something, we say stuff that's just foolish talk. But again, find yourself in Caiaphas. Find yourself in the chief priests. Find yourself in Pilate, who, 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 who against his better judgment, against his inner thoughts, against his wife's advice, against everything that was going on, when he is faced with an inconvenient truth, rather than to stand for it, he just goes along with the crowd, dismisses Jesus, and has him crucified. Flashback. When Jesus was first taken to Caiaphas's house, there's the drama that's unfolding in the, uh, the house and in the dungeon. And then about a hundred yards away from that, separated by the wall of the house, is an outer courtyard, and some uh, people are kind of gathered out there, probably the press and, and whoever else, and, and they're out there just gathering, and, and some of the disciples, at least Simon Peter was there as well. And this is the, the famous story that we get to, but first this, when we have a chance to stand for our faith, we must acknowledge that we have some fear, that we fear the reaction of others. I, I hear that all the time. I would talk about my faith, but I don't know how to get into the conversation. I would talk about my faith, but I'm afraid somebody's going to answer, ask a question I, I can't answer. I would talk about my faith more, but I don't know the Bible very well. I would talk about my faith, well, a lot more, except that's your job, Alan. And so we acknowledge that in all of us, there's just a little bit of this. And fortunately, in his life, we get to sort of unpack why. Verse 54, in chapter 22 of Luke. Chapter 22 of Luke, verse 54. Then they seized him, Jesus. They led him away. They brought him to the high priest's house. Peter was following as a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. 
By the way, the word fire that's there in verse 55, that's only used twice in the whole Bible. It's used once here, and it's used again in John chapter 21, and literally it says a charcoal fire. Only used twice. File that away. Servant girl said, you're with him. He denied it. Verse 57, woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him, said, you're one of them. Then Peter said, man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, uh, oops, sorry. After an interval of about an hour, um, well, one of them said, you were there, insisted. Certainly this man was with him, for he's a Galilean. In other words, I, I recognize his accent. There's no way that I'm going to teach a class in uh, Boston and have them say, you're from around here, aren't you? <laughs> because they, they can tell as soon as I open my mouth, I'm from the south. That's what's going on here. You're a Galilean. You're not from around here. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. This is probably somewhere around six in the morning, seven in the morning. Jesus was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane well after midnight. He had already had the Last Supper with the disciples. He'd already prayed in the garden. By the time Judas showed up with the, the police to arrest him, it was probably two in the morning. Then to Annas' house, then to Caiaphas' house. So this is probably uh, in the early morning before he goes to Pilate. The fire is out there to be warmed up, and Peter is confronted. Now, the thing is that earlier, Jesus had said to Peter, you shouldn't be too proud of yourself because you're going to fall. Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, son of, of John, uh, son of whoever, Satan has come to me. He's demanded to sift you like wheat. Yet I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail you, that when you have returned, you can strengthen the others. He said you're going to fail. And so I would like to just sort of give you a takeaway of the anatomy of that failure, the, the, the prescription of that failure, how, how my faith stumbles now and then, and, and perhaps yours too. Just, just five words. They all start with the letter D, so maybe you can write them down and remember them. The first one, if you look back just a little while in Luke's account of this, back into uh, Luke 22, verse 31, the one I just quoted. Then verse 32, but I prayed for you that faith may not fail. Oops, I skipped one. 24, thank you, Judy. She's right, I'm wrong. A dispute rose among them. In other words, the disciples are bickering about who's greatest. And if we want to kind of do a prescription for when our faith stumbles, when we understand we're bickering with other Christians about spiritual things, especially and even more importantly about who's better than somebody else, our faith is headed for a cliff. Dis disputes. A dispute arose among them about which one was going to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to him, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority, but not so with you. 
disputes. Look down a little further. After he said, Satan has come to me, demanded to see if you like wheat, Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Delusion. Disputes. Delusion. He's deluding himself. What, what do you mean you're not going to fall when everybody else does? Uh, Peter, you're going to fall hardest of anybody. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me not once, not twice, but three times. Delusion. Three, distance. Verse 54, when they seized him, Jesus, they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Peter was following at a distance. Whenever we follow Jesus from a distance, our faith is headed for a fall. Denial, verse 57, but he denied it three times. Disputes. Delusion, I missed one, distraction. Look at verse 45. When he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples. He found them sleeping. Jesus had said, would you, would you stay awake? Would, would you stay awake and pray? Well, think about how that fits together. When we find ourselves arguing with each other, when we try to convince ourselves that we'll never fall, when we get easily distracted, especially in prayer, when we follow Jesus at a distance, how far away can denial really be? And it just it hit me square between the eyes. Yes, I can embrace that I can be like Caiaphas, that when my stuff is threatened, I'm threatened, I'm going to push back. I can see myself as, in some ways, a lot like Pilate, that when I'm confronted by an inconvenient truth, I, I would rather try to reframe the narrative so that I look better or so that I don't have blame. But I really, really resonate with Peter. A guy that had followed Jesus for a long time, and yet when the stars line up, and we bicker with each other. We tell ourselves how great we are. We get distracted in prayer. We follow from a distance. How far away can denial really be? And church, I am so glad that's not the end of the story. Over in John 21... The other place where the word charcoal fire is used, we have a story where Peter understood what grace was really all about. The end of this story, Jesus is being led towards Pilate. Somehow, some way, Jesus and Peter are in proximity with one another, their eyes meet. There's, there's eye contact made. Peter realizes how far he'd fallen. And the Scripture says he wept bitterly. And Peter knows nothing else. Not on Friday when Jesus was crucified, just hours after this conversation took place. Not Saturday on Sunday of the resurrection, Peter ran to the tomb. He found the tomb was empty. He, he later saw Jesus, but there's still unfinished business, folks. And yet on a beach by the Sea of Galilee, 
where, no surprise to anybody, there's a church. It's a place called Tagapa, which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the Scripture tells us that on that beach, Jesus built a little charcoal fire, maybe to remind Peter of another charcoal fire. And after a miraculous catch of fish, a conversation took place between Peter and Jesus, probably in earshot so everybody could benefit. And Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? you love me more than these, more than we don't really know what these meant? Do you, do you love me more than your power, your possessions, your position? Do you love me more than your safety? Do you love me more than your life? Do you love me? Peter says, Lord, do you know I love you? How long had he been waiting to say that? How long had he been waiting to repent? How long had he been waiting to say, Lord, can we... Can we have a do-over? Can, can I get just a little bit of a mulligan for that unfortunate stuff at Caiaphas' house? Well, then Jesus asks him again, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I do. And then he asks him a third time, as if he was canceling out each one of the denials. Shows us how complete grace really is. And three times Peter denied him by a charcoal fire, and three times Jesus restored him by a charcoal fire. I don't think that those are accidental details in the Scripture. And in each of those times, Jesus essentially said, don't tell me, show me. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. What a Jesus we can be like Caiaphas. We can be like Annas. We can be like Simon Peter. We can be threatened because of our stuff and get hostile. We can be threatened by an inconvenient truth and push back. We can, we can have that, that litany of things. We can be distracted and bickering with each other and telling ourselves how great we are. We can follow Jesus at a distance. We can deny Him. And still, Jesus shows up to say, you are loved. You are forgiven. You are my child. Wow. Would you bow your heads? It's possible that you're in this space and you've never met that Jesus. The Jesus you're familiar with is angry and is against stuff. Could be you've never met that Jesus. I'd like you to meet him today. I'd like you to see him as the Jesus who will cancel out your disputes and your distraction and your delusion and your distance and your denial. I'd like to, to introduce you to that Jesus who knows everything that you've ever done or thought or said or been. He says, I want to show you a different way of thinking where you don't have to beat yourselves up about what you've done, but to accept the grace that he offers. Could be that you've found that your life is a little off track. That maybe the anatomy of a failure, maybe the, uh, 
the delusion or the distance or the distraction, disputes, denial. Maybe that's part of your world. I want to invite you to pray with somebody this morning, whether you've never met Jesus and you need to, or whether you just need a, a reset. There are people in green shirts in the lobby. There are pastors here. You've seen most of them on screen. Jeff's not here. He's in mission right now. But Robert's here and Brian's here. John's here. Alan's here. I'm here. If you just need somebody to pray with and say, I, I need to understand that Jesus, the charcoal fire Jesus who helps with the reset. Don't leave here today without talking with him, without doing that kind of business with him. Don't, don't leave here today with a sense that you have unresolved issues that you need Jesus to speak into, whether you've never met him or whether you realize that a few of those D's have crept in. Let this be the day. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for all you're about in our lives. Thanks for stories of this unbelievable grace. But it's believable because you are the way, the truth, the life. And we come to the Father through you. Lord, let those conversations happen today. We pray in Jesus' name.